Hey, Lisa, I don't see your, your face. Lisa? No, I just got the other three like you. Okay, there I see you. <clears throat> so Chris isn't there. Vincent, are you there? Yes, I am here. Okay. I don't see your uh, screenshot. <clears throat> you could probably see me, but I can't see you. He said yesterday was a, uh, a record breaking marriage licenses in Vegas. Cause oh, two, 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 yeah. Not in Vegas. Vegas. Well, what's the real great places to our relationship? They don't understand what it's all about. Well, wait around to year 2,222. <laughs> right, right, divorces. 2022, yeah. mm -hmm. Married in 92, and then maybe next year that was 93. 2022. Okay, I see Chris. Vincent, I don't see your uh, picture on the screen yet. Do you see me? Vince is shy. <laughs> He's negotiating with his agent. <laughs> it's picture taken. Okay. Since everyone, I can see him. Vince is saying that his camera is not working. Not working, okay. His camera not working. But we vouch for his voice. We recognize the voice. Got a face for radio. It's a faceless one. Okay. So tonight, uh, tonight we're uh, we're the halfway mark. Uh, no class next week. This is Ash Wednesday, and then the following week is the midterm. Okay. The last class. So these are the six classes on Paul, and you have the midterm, and then we'll have six classes on John. Father, are you going to go over the nature of the questions tonight, or? No, I may as well tell you now. Basically, the introductory material on the background of Paul as a Pharisee, you know, uh, his conversion, his attitude about Christianity, you know, what made him a persecutor. And also, uh, you know, basically, uh, what changed in his attitude afterwards. So some of the basic things about understanding Paul's thought you know, before. You know, we talked about three stages you know, as a Jew, and uh, when he had a conversion experience, and then as an apostle to the Gentiles. So again, you know, some of the more important things. I, I'm not trying to pick, pick you things out. And then for most of the letters, basically, uh, uh, and then and Paul too, uh, what's, what was his MO in terms of recruiting people, getting converts? How did he and his fellow co-workers go about you know, making converts? And then in each of the letters, basically, what was the occasion or the purpose for writing that letter? Every one of them, there's a reason why Paul wrote. 
So what was the thing that prompted him to write to that community? And uh, what were the issues involved? And how did he go about solving them? They talk about, you know, Thessalonians about the second coming, Romans about the role of faith and the law. So, you know, each of those letters. Okay, so just basically, you know, I'm going to ask you a question about, and you have a choice. Probably three out of five. But you're not looking for like verse number and everything, stuff like that. No, you, you, can, you, can use the basics. you can use your Bible. Uh, I may give you a verse to tell you, ask you to comment. How does that reflect Paul's uh, approach in this letter? Uh, I may say in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 18, what does that tell you about you know, uh, the problem he's facing? How he's going about solving it. So that's the only thing that would... I would give you the verses and tell you, okay, comment. Yeah. Okay. So we can't bring in our Bibles. Oh, yeah, def- all, the time. all the time. Or I may say, you know, we're going to do Second Thessalonians, and I may say, uh, make, give you some verses in First Thessalonians, give some verses in Second Thessalonians, and say, uh, how do you reconcile this? You know, it doesn't agree or whatever it is. Why? Nothing small, but basically some of the major points. So, if you when you go over each of the letters, just say, okay, why why did Paul write this letter? What was going on? Is it their behavior? Was it a doctrinal issue? Did it have to do with like keeping the law, or somebody tell them they had to be circumcised? Had to do with the second coming? Realization that they all thought they were. You know, uh, you know, in a glorified state. Yeah. So that's it. Okay. Father, for those of us that are on Zoom, are we, are you going to email us the test and then have you yep. send it back to you? Yeah. Uh, everybody, even here, you can bring your computers in. It'll be up on Popoli at night. I'll be here. Uh, so you have, you'll have it timed, okay? Is that you only have access to it at a certain time, maybe seven o'clock. That's the way they have it set up until nine thirty or whatever. Okay. So you have the two and a half hours. You can uh, you write on your computer and then you can send it to me, uh, you know, through Popoli. Okay. Father, Father, just a clarification on that um, because we did this for canon law last last semester. Those of us that were zooming. And it was a not not a real friendly experience to do it on Popoli and then submit it in Popoli rather than you emailing it to us and then emailing it back to you. Um, because it, I, don't, I don't know, maybe there's a solution to the problem, but we were only able to see one line at a time where we were typing our answers in Popoli. Yeah. Uh, that, was an issue, that was an issue with the teacher. So he has to set it up so you can. That was because the professor had set it up. Incorrectly, they don't live in office space. I uh, I usually give it to Cynthia Harrison, and yeah. she puts it up. So I had no problem last year. Yeah, as long as it gives a long, a big enough box. We had one exam where he gave us a line; it was impossible to. And you also you have uh, her cell number, so anytime during the exam you have a question, uh, you can call her cell number and she'll get guide you through it. Okay, but last year I had no trouble. 
everybody was able to access even those in class. And then you can send it uh, off you know, to my uh, account, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Will we be allowed to handwrite it if we want? If you want, uh, if your handwriting is good. Neither is my typing. Yeah, I'll do my best. Okay. My handwriting is better than my typing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't do it. It's just that uh, uh, if your handwriting is difficult to read, then it makes it difficult to understand what you're saying. Yeah, let, let me ask the question a little differently. Do you think it's the kind of situation where we're going to be pressed for time? I don't think if you have three out of five and you have two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine, right? So I can talk about 45 minutes per, per question. Yeah. So that's plenty. And you don't want any more than eight pages of question, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us one or two. I always say, I said to my students at Fordham all the time, I said three basic things. First, put your name on that paper. You don't want to blame anybody else. <laughs> two. Answer the question I'm asking, not the one you want to answer. Right. Number three, and most important of all, keep the shovel light. They look at me, what did you say? I said, you heard me. It's not by the volume of what you write, it's, you know, basically quality, the, not quantity. Yeah, the quality, yeah. So answer the question, that's it. So that was always my three guiding principles to my undergrads at food. Okay. So, and again, you'll see from the questions, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, direct. They're not, you know, write me a book. You know, I'm asking you about a specific thing in that letter. And, uh, you know, if you look up the verse and say, oh, yeah, you know, I know this is what he's writing this because this is what is going on. Okay, and this is how he's answering the question or uh, chastising them and saying, you know, shape up. Okay. All right, now tonight we're going to do Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, and might get to a little bit of the introductory material on the pastoral letters. And I'll also do that section on Ephesians, uh, husbands, wives, love your husbands, or obey your husbands, okay? We'll take a look at that. All right, Second Thessalonians. We did First Thessalonians. This letter is one whose authorship remains in greatest doubt. As is the case with 1 Thessalonians, this letter claims to be written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. That's the way he began the first letter. This is the way the second letter begins. Whoever the actual author of the letter was, its occasion appears to be reasonably clear. So what do we mean by the occasion seems to be clear? Occasion means? The reason. The reason, yeah. The reason why he's writing this is clear. It's written to a group of Christians who are undergoing intense suffering for their faith. Find that in verses 4 to 6 in chapter 1. So people to whom this letter is being written are undergoing intense suffering for their faith. We don't know how this suffering manifested itself. We don't know whether it was caused by some kind of official government opposition to these uh, Christians at Thessalonica, whether it was you know, pressure from the Roman Empire, etc., or hostility from the local people, whether Jews or Gentiles. 
They didn't like what they were hearing from the apostles or something else. I'm not sure who the people who are oppressing these Thessalonians. We do know that the author wrote to assure his readers that if they remain faithful, they would be rewarded when Christ returned to judgment from heaven. So they're facing a lot of suffering. They're told that if they remain faithful, they would be rewarded when Christ returned to judgment from heaven. Verses 7 to 12 there in chapter 1. He also says, at this parousia of Jesus, when he comes back, those who opposed him and rejected their message would be punished with eternal destruction. Those who remain faithful, those who opposed them and rejected their message would be punished with eternal destruction. But they, the saints, would enter into their glorious reward. reason why this letter is written. Okay, these Christians are undergoing intense suffering. Okay, it's written to reassure them that they remain faithful. They will be rewarded when Christ returned to judgment from heaven. And then also when Jesus did come back, the second coming, Parousia, those who opposed the uh, Christians to Thessalonica rejected the message to be punished with eternal destruction. The angels went into their glorious reward. Now a second reason for the letter is that some members of this Christian community had come to believe that the end of time had already come upon them. The members of the Christian community had come to believe the end of time had already come upon them. By that we mean they thought that the day of judgment was going to happen not in some future time, but right away. was in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Now, some of those who thought this found confirmation in prophecies spoken by members of the congregation. The reason they believe this is that some people were prophesying in the congregation, telling them that the day of judgment was going to come right away. And also, they were led to believe this by uh, a letter that was reputedly written by Paul, which is that in chapter 2, verse 2. The reason I thought the end time was going to come right away is that some people in the community were prophesying this, and also that that's what was stated in a letter that was supposedly written by Paul. Now, the author of this letter, 2 Thessalonians, claims to be the real Paul. He warns his readers not to be deceived. So whatever an earlier forger may have asserted, writer of 2nd Thessalonians says the end has not come yet 
why does he say the end hasn't come yet? Because there were certain events that had to transpire first. Chapter 2, verse 3, you find that reasoning. So he says, don't be deceived. Regardless of what an early letter supposedly from Paul said, the end had not come yet. Because there were certain things that had to transpire first. And what are these things that were supposed to come first? Well, he describes these events in an apocalyptic scenario. It sounds very much like what we would find in the Apocalypse of John. Book of Revelation. He says a kind of antichrist figure is to be revealed on earth before Christ returns. An antichrist figure is supposed to appear before the parousia of Jesus Christ. He says this lawless person, this antichrist, is ultimately destined for destruction. Which is in chapter 2, verse 3. He goes into some detail, says this Antichrist is going to exalt himself above every other so-called God or object of worship. In other words, he's going to claim to be greater than any other so-called God or anything they worship. And he'll eventually take his seat in God's temple in Jerusalem. When he does take his seat in the temple in Jerusalem, he's going to declare himself to be God. And in chapter 2, verse 4. And now the author of this letter reminds the readers that he fully informed them of this scenario when he was with them. Chapter 2, verse 5. So I told you about this when I was with you. This was going to happen. Moreover, it has obviously not yet occurred since no one has yet come forward to assume the role of the Antichrist. He says that uh, there's some supernatural force mysteriously restraining the lawless one for the time being. It's keeping him from appearing. Some kind of uh, supernatural force keeping this Antichrist from appearing. I'm just curious, Father, where's Paul getting all of this from? The Antichrist and taking the seat in the temple and claiming to be God. Where's it coming from? Well, obviously, he's getting information from the community of Thessalonica. No, no Paul's Paul's position, what, what Paul is teaching about the coming of the Antichrist. I mean, if it's not, if it's well, not really... We'll, we'll get to that because there's, you know, there's going to be irony or contradiction here. Okay. So this is what he's dealing with in the second letter. This is what he's saying. Now, what you're saying, I'm going to bring up in just a minute, okay? Just let me finish this one thing, sure. okay? So then when the force that's restraining this lawless one or antichrist is removed, that's when he goes, he's going to make his appearance. And it's going to set in motion that final confrontation between Christ and the forces of evil that are headed by Satan. Find that in Chapter 2, verses 6 to 12. So he, he says that the Antichrist is supposed to appear. He says, uh, 
Obviously, end time hasn't come yet because this Antichrist hasn't yet appeared. Why hasn't he appeared? Because there's some supernatural force restraining him from uh, coming on the scene. But once that force is removed, then he's going to make his appearance and set in motion the confrontation between Jesus and the forces of evil. Now, for the most part, this letter was written to assure this congregation of Christians that the end was not yet upon them. As he mentions in chapter 2, verse 5, this Paul fully instructed them previously about this. Christ wouldn't return until this apocalyptic scenario played itself out. Now we discover in the final chapters of this letter that the problem in the congregation there was not simply one of establishing the timetable for these upcoming events when the Antichrist would appear. Not worry about, uh, it isn't just a question of when it's going to happen. Usually some of the members of the church were so persuaded that the end was obviously or absolutely imminent that they quit their jobs and were simply waiting for the second coming to happen. He brings that up in chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. And you can realize or understand this decision on the part of these people had grave social implications. The people who kept their jobs had to feed those who hadn't. <laughs> the people hanging around, you know, there are street people. In the situation of apocalyptic freeloading was a source of tension in the congregation. Some were going to work and earning a living. They wound up having to pay for their uh, relatives and neighbors who were just waiting around all day. In terms very reminiscent of 1 Thessalonians, the author reminds his readers that he and his companions had lived among them, working for their own meals, refusing to be a burden on others. Uh, so they went and they, uh, worked at a trade. You know, provided uh, the money they needed to feed themselves and accommodate themselves. And he insists that these people do the same thing. The apostles worked. They weren't a burden on the community. Well, the same thing about these people who aren't working. They should work, provide for themselves, and not be a burden on the community. So uh, you find that in chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Okay, so you get the idea of what's going on in this letter? My question is, was this author, this second best songs, actually Paul? In places, he sounds like Paul. For instance, in the prescript in the opening, which is very close to the opening of First Thessalonians, or similar, and in the recollection of Paul's Paul's toil among the Thessalonians when he was first with them. It was that he worked and didn't be wasn't a burden to anyone. And you find a number of Pauline themes throughout the epistle. For instance, the necessity of suffering. Because the reason he's writing them is they're undergoing a lot of suffering. It tells us to be faithful, hang on. 
Also, the expectation of ultimate vindication. The apocalyptic hope that stood at the core of Paul's gospel, that hope and uh, salvation brought by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So those are definitely Pauline themes, finally. But do these similarities mean that Paul wrote the letter? The problem from an historian's point of view, and I don't know, did any of you see Father John Myers and Senior John Myers' lecture? He talked about the historical Jesus. What can you establish in terms of history, hard history, as opposed to what you accept, you know, on the testimony of apostles and faith? So, from the problem from a historian's point of view is that someone who had decided to imitate Paul would no doubt try to sound like Paul. You do that as a singer, or like you know, the guys that mimic, you know, they they learn uh, how to sing like uh, one of the favorite singers. Sometimes if you weren't there and you heard the voice, you'd say, oh, this is, you know, sounds like so-and-so. In that case, how could we possibly know whether we're dealing with the apostle himself or one of his later followers? If the author is doing his best to make himself sound like Paul, how can we tell whether it's really Paul or someone later, one of his later followers? There is a way to resolve this kind of historical whodunit. And it involves looking at the other side of the coin. What do I mean by that? To look at the parts of the letter that don't sound like Paul. So these peculiar features provide the best indicators of whether the letter is authentic was written by a member of one of Paul's churches after the apostle himself had passed from the scene. So the best way to figure out whether it's truly written by Paul is to look at the uh, parts of the letter that don't sound like Paul. This negative evidence is useful because we would expect someone who's trying to imitate Paul to sound like Paul. We We wouldn't expect Paul not to sound like Paul. You follow me? We expect any imitator to make sure he sounds like Paul. The real Paul wouldn't do anything to make himself sound not like himself. So it's the differences from Paul that are most crucial for establishing whether Paul wrote this or any other disputed letter. Now, with respect to 2 Thessalonians, the most intriguing issue is that the author writes to assure his readers that even though the end will be soon, it will not come right away. Other things have to happen first, like the Antichrist, okay? And so they're told to hold on to their hopes and their jobs, for there's still time left. Now, does this sound like the same person who urged the readers of his first letter to stay alert so they wouldn't be taken by surprise when Jesus returns? It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 3 and 6. 
be taken by surprise since the end will come with no advance warning like a thief in the night. It's First Thessalonians chapter 5, 2. Sudden destruction. Chapter 5, verse 3. And so First Thessalonians says it's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect it. Take you by surprise. According to Second Thessalonians, there'll be plenty of advance warning. That which is restrained, this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be removed, and the Antichrist figure will reveal himself, exalt himself above all the other objects of worship, establish his throne in the Jerusalem temple, and declare himself to be God. Only then will Christ return. Now, how is this like a thief in the night who comes when people least expect it? Okay, so have an issue here because the message different. The first Thessalonians says. Be ready because it's going to come upon you, you know, by surprise. Okay, second Thessalonians says, no, there's going to be lots of things that have to happen first. When they do, then Christ is going to return. Now, it's also interesting that the author claims to have taught the Thessalonians these things while he was with them. The author of second Thessalonians says, I told you this. When I was with you. Now, if he had done so, you would wonder why he didn't appeal to this knowledge of upcoming events in his first letter. When he answered the Thessalonians' question about those who have fallen asleep, he could have pointed out that, of course, some people are going to die before the end, since it wasn't imminent. But, you know, why are you surprised? The end is. Lots of things have to happen before it is. But he doesn't say that at all in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, Paul doesn't say, remember that the day of the Lord is not already here. First, this man of lawlessness must be revealed. Instead, if the Thessalonians had already been fully apprised of this future course of events at the time of the first letter, you would wonder why they were surprised by the death of some of their numbers in the first place. You know, we would expect... Time is going to elapse. People are going to die. Yeah. So why are they so surprised or worried about those who have died? If you know, they were told not to expect the parousia right away. That is, in fact, the message of the first Thessalonians. It's going to happen suddenly without warning. And finally, if the future appearance of this Antichrist was a central component of Paul's teaching, as he suggests in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 5, it's very strange. He never says a word about it in any of his other letters. And he talks about the delay of the parousia. So these difficulties make it hard to see how Paul could have written both of the letters the Thessalonians. How would the same guy, you know, contradictory messages? One of the most interesting things about the second letter is how it ends. He says in chapter 3, verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the mark in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. 
That means that Paul dictated the letter to a scribe and added his own signature to it, as he did, for example, in the letter to the Galatians. He says that. What's peculiar, though, is that he claims this to be his invariable practice. He says, uh, you know, it's the way I write. Even though there's no evidence that he ended most of his other letters this way, including First Thessalonians. Doesn't say that at all. Words are hard to account for as Paul's, but they make perfect sense as the words of an imitator of Paul, who wants his readers to be assured that despite the fact that they've received at least one letter that was forged in Paul's name, this is not another one. He's saying, okay, I warned you about the forgery. This is a real letter. Of course, uh, scholars, when they, it's like uh, they turn detectives when they look at this uh, discrepancy. They've taken the question of forgery a bit further and suggested that when the author, claiming to be Paul, tries to calm his readers not to be led away by a forged letter, he says, as if by us, maintains in Paul's name that the end is right around the corner that the forger is actually referring to 1 Thessalonians. Saying, you know, it's going to come. That was the forgery. Some people say that you know, maybe this author of 2 Thessalonians is hinting that the first letter is a real forgery. That if someone living later wanted to dissuade readers of the message that Paul himself had taught about the imminent end. Since it did not come, Paul and everyone else had died in the meantime. So they say an author provided some reassurance by forging a letter claiming the authentic letter was a forgery. Now, whether or not that's right, what seems relatively certain is that someone after the time of Paul decided that he had to intervene in a situation which people were eagerly anticipating the end. So eagerly suggests they were neglecting the duties of daily life. They did so by opening a letter in Paul's name, knowing full well it was someone else living later. So if somebody in Paul's community has realized we got to do something about these people that are just, you know, freeloading and, you know, sitting around waiting. So this letter is going to address the fact you, you can't sit around waiting because the end is not going to come right away. And, uh, We obviously don't know who actually wrote this second Thessalonians letter, if it wasn't Paul. We can only speculate about when the real author was living. We can assume that he wrote sometime after Paul had died. Because I don't think he would be able to write it if Paul was still alive to counter it. Possibly maybe near the end of the first century when writing letters in Paul's name became both more feasible and more popular. We do know that during this period, some Christian groups began to face increased hostilities within society, and that some of them were turning to a renewed hope in the return of Christ in light of these conflicts. There were 
hoping for the return of Christ to end this suffering and persecution, okay? So that'd be one reason why they wanted some assurance. So the author must have been a Christian from one of the churches that Paul had established. Someone who evidently had read 1 Thessalonians. Because he opened 2 Thessalonians in almost the identical way that 1 Thessalonians opened. So obviously he's aware of that letter. He wrote to help resolve the problems that Christians of his day were facing. And to try to resolve those problems, he chooses to do so in the name of Paul, the founder of his church. He figures the words of Paul would be heard and heeded. People believe that this was what Paul was saying to them, they would accept it. So writing as the apostle himself, he urged his readers to keep the faith, to maintain their hope, but not to expect the end of this age in the immediate future. God's plan for the end was in the process of being implemented. But believers shouldn't be too eager, living only for tomorrow, and not tending to the needs of today. So they had to take care of what they needed to today, as they were waiting for parousia in the future. They must suffer boldly and wait faithfully for the day of judgment which their longings will be fulfilled and their afflictions vindicated. Any questions on that? That's kind of a straightforward one, right? Uh, Father, I, I have a question about this. Um, so I know that the analysis of these letters didn't come until after they were written. But wasn't this a cause of concern for the early church that the letters seemed to be saying two different things, yet they were still considered books that were to be included in the canon? I mean, am I missing something? Mm -hmm. No, because uh, they they somehow were able to juggle that. Uh, Is the end going to come unexpectedly, just like the day of our death? You know, it could come at any time, but if you're 15 and you're waiting for it to happen every day, you know, and you may live to be 80, uh, you know, it's going to come suddenly. You won't know. Some people die very young, some people live a very old life, but nobody knows at that moment when. So uh, Second Thessalonians is addressing the fact that some people are taking this idea that the heresy was going to happen very soon. Okay. To the extreme, saying, well, uh, that we don't have to do anything because why work to build up something when it's all going to be over in a second? Christ returns. So they, they, it's both things are true. In the Gospels, we have the same thing. Jesus warns about, uh, you know, two people in bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Uh, you know, two people in the fields, one will be taken, one will be left. Yeah. His message is, yeah, my return is something you can't figure out. It will be unexpected. You don't know the day or the hour. But, you know, at the same time, uh, to think that it's going to happen 
right away, you know, is not not the case. You know, it's going to happen at God's own time and choosing. So, I mean, parts of the letter, there is a core of Christian teaching in both letters. The second letter is meant to address the issue of people who are taking the parousia is going to happen tomorrow. And they stop working today. First letter is saying, is addressing the fact that they thought the parousia was going to happen very, very soon. And some people had died and they missed out on the resurrection and glory. And in a sense, you know, Paul does leave an opening there. He said, no, don't worry about it. You know, when Christ comes, he's going to raise the dead to life and then we will join them in the clouds of heaven. So, uh, you know, so, you know, in both of those letters, there's a, we have the same thing in uh, the Old Testament. First and second chapters of Genesis tell the story of creation in two different ways, contradictory ways. And yet, you know, the people who accepted books into the canon were okay with that. Why? Because there are truths in each of the stories. Does God have the power to just say things and let it happen? Yep. Does God start close to his people, moving among them, living among them, and like a craftsman? Yep. Okay. But both can't be true, but both of them have basic truths about who God is. It's not a science book. It's not trying to tell you how God created, but that God is the creator, however he does it, whether by the power of his word or as a creator moving about among his creatures. So, I mean, they contradict each other, but again, uh, there is a, a basic core of, uh, of faith and belief in there, in each one of those. Okay, uh, does that help to explain anything, George? Yes, that actually does. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a good question, though. We are more critical and analytical. They live with contradictions in the Old Testament. Uh, and in the early days, uh, we are more critical. We see inconsistencies, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, I'm sure they saw that, but it didn't bother them like it sometimes bothers us. Okay, the letter to the Colossians. Okay, in, in our study of Paul, it's important to try to determine if all the letters purporting to be from Paul are authentic. It's important to try to determine that if they're authentic. Why? So that we can determine as accurately as possible the bearing these letters might have on his life and work and the content of his theology. Now, for fundamentalists and literalists, there's no problem because they accept everything in the Bible as written. So sometimes they stand in their head to try to resolve these inconsistencies. You know, God made the created the earth in seven days. Well, seven days means seven eras, etc. So they try to explain. They don't want to say it's a figure of speech. It's a way of using images to tell the story of creation. They accept everything literally. So they have no problem. But most scholars today are willing to consider arguments on both sides of the question of authenticity. 
So it's important to notice that some scholars accept while others reject the authenticity of this letter to the Colossians. Now Colossae, along with two other cities, Heropolis and Laodicea, were in the Roman province of Asia, in Asia Minor. And during Roman times, Colossae was inhabited by native Phrygians, Greek colonists, and Jews who were descendants of those settled in the region by Antiochus III and others. Greek emperor you know, trying to uh, impose Hellenic culture on them, relocated them out of their homeland to different areas. Like other cities in Asia Minor, the population though was predominantly Gentile. What do we know about Colossae? Well, Tacitus, Roman historian, in his book, The Annals, says that an earthquake destroyed Laodicea in the year 60 to 61, and that Colossae may also have been destroyed then. So you can take this letter then, it has to be before the city was destroyed. Eusebius, the church historian, reports that in 63 to 64, those three cities, Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae, were destroyed by an earthquake. There are no literary sources of information for Colossae after the year 61. Uh, no writings that emanate from there or refer to them. Some coins, though, from the second and third centuries indicate that the deities worshipped at Colossae included the Phrygian god, men, in the end, and several gods and goddesses of mystery cults. No excavations of Colossae, but the site has been identified since 1835 when a traveler identified the ruins of the city. There's no evidence either in the Acts of the Apostles or in Paul's letters that Paul ever visited Colossae. And that's you know, like Rome, the letters of the Romans. Paul didn't found that church. We don't know whether you've had a chance to visit it. But here, also, uh, there's no evidence either in the Acts of the Apostles or from Paul himself in his letters that he ever visited Colossae. The writer of Colossians indicates he has not been to the church at Colossae. He says in the opening part of the letter, chapter 1, verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, We've heard of, uh, I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So obviously he has not been to that church. All right, so how did Christianity get there? Christian message. Apparently the Colossians had first learned of the gospel from Epaphras. Chapter 1, verse 7. 
Epiphras was a Colossian who had worked at Laodicea and Aeropolis. He was the one who reported the faith and love of the Colossian Christians to whoever wrote this letter. Expresses that in chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. And the Acts of the Apostles reports that during Paul's stay at Ephesus, all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So it's possible that among those who heard the word were the converts in the three cities in this Lycus Valley, Laodicea, Ropolis, and Colossae. Also, it's possible that Epaphras came to Ephesus, was converted there, and then returned to his hometown, Colossae, to establish a Christian church there. So if that's the case, in this way, then Paul would have been indirectly responsible for founding the church at Colossae. Why? Because he had converted Epaphras, Epaphras then went back to Colossae and founded the church. Okay. And these are all speculations. Nobody's sure. As is the case with Second Thessalonians, scholars continue to debate the authorship of Colossians. Although we have an entirely different set of problems to consider here. There's no real problem understanding the ostensible occasion of a letter. Paul, this letter writer, names himself, is in prison for preaching the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 3. While there, he had heard news of the church in Colossae, which is that in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul, this letter writer, did not establish his church but his co-worker and companion Epaphras, a citizen of the place, did. Now the news that Paul heard or learned about Colossians is mixed. On the one hand, he's excited and pleased to learn that they've converted to faith in Christ. He's happy to learn that they've become Christians and have committed themselves to the gospel of Christ through the work of Epaphras. Epaphras has instructed them about the gospel. He's happy they've converted, committed themselves to living the gospel. He's happy on one side, but on the other, he's learned that there are false teachers among them. We're trying to lead them into a different kind of religious experience. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says that. So he's writing to address the situation. He's fool's teachers. Several times, the writer of this letter seems to be addressing Gentiles. He speaks of making the mystery of Christ among the Gentiles, making known the mystery of Christ among the Gentiles. He says that in chapter 1, verse 27. And he states, you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, chapter 1, verse 21, that probably refers to Gentiles. Estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil 
On the other hand, the statement about being circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, chapter 2, verse 11, and a comment about festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths, chapter 2, verse 16, would indicate the presence also of Jews or maybe of Gentile converts who are following Jewish practices. The author of this letter alludes to his opponent's ideas, but he doesn't give any detailed description of them. Just assumes the readers already know full well what he's talking about. He labels this new teaching a philosophy and empty deceit. Chapter 2, verse 8. And he counters it by indicating that believers have already experienced a spiritual circumcision. Verse 11. In other words, not physical circumcision that would make you a Jew, a follower of the law, but a spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. The spiritual circumcision would be a kind of the new covenant in Christ. Furthermore, he insists that since Christ has erased the requirements of the Jewish law for believers through his death, Christ's death has erased the requirements for believers to follow the Jewish law, they don't have to follow regulations about what to eat, what special days to keep as religious festivals. Talks about that in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Now these passages make it appear that the false teachers were advocating some form of Judaism Maybe something like the opponents of Paul in Galatia. They also insisted on, quote here, self-abasement in the worship of angels, basing their appeal on special visions that they had had. For example, in chapter 2, verses 18 to 19. So this suggests maybe they advocated an ascetic lifestyle self-abasement, and possibly the ecstatic adoration of higher beings about the worship of angels. They were urged to adopt an ascetic lifestyle and also have some kind of ecstatic experience. Scholars have debated the precise nature of this false teaching for many years. In general terms, Paul's opponents were evidently promoting some kind of Jewish mysticism. In which people were encouraged to experience ecstatic visions of heaven. Would thereby be transported to the divine realm these ecstatic visions would kind of raise them to the divine realm, so they would find themselves filled with the joy and power of divinity. Now, what does that sound like? Realize Paul talks about people, Galatians, yeah, going about thinking that they're in a 
a state a resurrected and ascended state, right? Okay, now such people were commonly ascetic, urging followers to avoid bodily desires. They wanted to escape the body and enjoy the pleasures of the spirit. So this ascetic experience would uh, raise the spirit, not the body, uh, heavenward. These people were Jews, they may well have rooted their asceticism in the Jewish scriptures and would have urged their followers to keep kosher food laws, observe the Sabbath, and if they were men, be circumcised. So that's possibly what was going on in Colossae. These people urging them to uh, you know, uh, lead an ascetic life to abase themselves and also you know, worship of uh, angels. An ecstatic experience. Now, in response to these views, whoever wrote this letter to the Galatians insists that Christ Himself is the fullest expression of the divine. Want to experience the fullest expression of the divine? Okay, Christ is it. In His words, Christ is the very image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Chapter 1, verse 15. Now, if that's true, Christ is the fullest expression of the divine. There is little reason for Christian believers to worship angels when they can worship the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 1, verse 19. So why are you worshiping angels when you can worship God? Fullest expression, okay? In fact, the other invisible beings are said to have been both created by and made subservient to Christ himself. He sees a creations of this God. He says, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. Chapter 1, verse 16, that's what he says. Besides that, Christ alone is responsible for the ultimate benefits bestowed upon the believer. What has Christ done for the believer? Well, it is Christ who has reconciled all people to God. He's reconciled all people to God through his death and resurrection. We have that in one of the Eucharistic prayers. He's reconciled us to the Father. When Christ reconciled all people to God, he did so. He destroyed everything that brought alienation, including the law with all its legal demands. So when Christ, through his death and resurrection, reside, because all the people of God, he destroyed everything that brought alienation, separated people from God, including the law with all its legal demands. So what sense is there then in returning to the adherence of the law? It's only put you alienated from God, not reconciled with for the author of this letter, Christ destroyed the need to do so. Follow the law. Those who are in Christ can enjoy the full benefits of the divine. I mentions that in chapter 2, verse 10, and verses 14 to 19. And these benefits, which are conferred only through Christ, include an exalted status that is already available to the believer. 
writer of the letter maintains there is no need for physical circumcision for those who experience the real spiritual circumcision that comes through faith in Christ. Become a believer, you have a spiritual circumcision. There's no need for ecstatic worship of angels for those who have already been raised up to the heavenly places in Christ. Keep that in mind, that should ring bells. There's no need to worship angels if you've already been raised up to the heavenly places in Christ. Or for human regulations, what to handle, what to eat, which only give the appearance of piety. Believers in Christ have a full experience of the divine itself. So the bottom line, he says, is Colossians have sought through their mystical experiences something that's already theirs in Christ. As long as they don't depart from the gospel message they have heard. Now the Colossians are to enjoy this full experience of the divine as those who've been raised to the heavenly places in Christ. Doesn't mean however they can neglect their physical lives in this world behave as though their bodies no longer matter. So they have to go on living in this world until Christ returns. That means maintaining moral and upright lives. So even though they've been raised to heavenly places, they can't neglect their physical lives, behave as though their bodies no longer matter. So the author of the letter gives a number of moral exhortations about what vices to avoid. It's fornication, passion, greed, and the like. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. And then on the flip side, he talks about the virtues that the uh, Colossians should embrace, namely compassion, kindness, humility, and the like. In chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. 5 to 11, he talks about the vices to avoid. Verses 12 to 17. Uh, the virtues to embrace. And on top of that, he gives advice to different social groups within the congregation about their interactions with one another. So that's a message for wives and husbands, chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Here's a message for children and fathers, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And then also a message for slaves and masters. Chapter 3, verses 22, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, quickly repeat those, um, those um, the messages to Mary, to the children, and what else? Slaves and masters. The first is wives and husbands, children and fathers. And finally, slaves and masters. Those are the kind of relationships that you would find in that community. It's any community. So the letter closes with some final instructions. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Sends greetings to members of the Colossian Church. Greetings from both Paul and from those with him. And then Paul's own signature and final benediction.
very end there. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my, remember my fetters, meaning he's in chains. Grace be with you. So you have his own signature and final blessing. But the question is, was this Paul's actual signature? And again, you know, as I'm describing the contents of this letter, certain things should have cropped up, question marks. In a number of ways, this letter looks very much like those that Paul himself wrote. The prescript introduction is written in the names of both Paul and Timothy. The basic layout of the letter and the closing all sound like Paul. And a number of important Pauline themes are treated. Themes like what? The importance of suffering in this world. Jesus' death as a reconciliation. That's God. And the participation of believers in Jesus' death through baptism. Judging on those names, you'd say, well, Paul might well have written this letter. But there is solid grounds for questioning Paul's authorship. One of the most compelling arguments depends on a detailed knowledge of Greek, because the writing style of Colossians differs markedly from that found in Paul's undisputed letters. Uh, concretely, what does that mean? Whereas Paul tends to write in short, succinct sentences, the author of Colossians has a more complex, involved style. Now, you can't pick that up when you read the English translation of the letter. Why? Because the long, complicated Greek constructions have been broken up into smaller sentences so that they don't appear too convoluted. So in English, we write it in sense form, whereas, uh, for instance, Colossians chapter 1, 3 to 8, that's five verses, one sentence. And there are also redundant combinations of parallel terms. For instance, we'll talk about praying and petitioning. So these and many similar arguments convince linguistic specialists that Paul didn't write this letter. The vocabulary of Colossians is very, very different from that in the undisputed letters of Paul. Now we say this is a disputed letter because we weren't quite sure he wrote it. 48 words are found only in Colossians and not in any of his other letters. 48 words here in this letter that never appear in any of his other letters. And out of those 48 words, 39 of them occur only one time in the whole New Testament, and that's here. Not only don't occur in his other letters, they don't even occur in the rest of the New Testament. While many of the odd words are used in relation to the problem that's being addressed by the letter, it might be accounted for situation Still, the percentage of unusual words is extraordinarily high. 
And also collosion shows a marked development in Paul's Christology and Ecclesiology. Now here's where the questions are raised. Other arguments can be more readily evaluated just from the English text. Most striking is that this author believes that Christians have participated with Christ in only in his death, but also in his resurrection. Remember, he talks about, you know, why worship angels, you know, he's in fact quite emphatic on this critical point. He says, believers have already been raised with Christ in the heavenly places to enjoy the full benefits of salvation. Chapter 2, verses 12, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, what do we know about Paul? You know, in the undisputed letters, he's emphatic on one critical point. What's that? Believers have already been, excuse me, even though Christians have died with Christ in their baptism, they have not yet been raised with him. They'll not be raised until the very end when Christ returns. Letters to the Colossians talks about them being raised to heavenly places to enjoy the benefits of salvation. Although the undisputed letters of Paul says that uh, even though Christians have died with Christ in baptism, they've not yet been raised with them, they won't be raised till the very end when Christ returns. And only does Paul stress this point in his most explicit discussion of baptismal person's participation with Christ in his death in Romans chapter 6. He also argues this point against his opponents in Corinth, who claim to already experience the resurrection, and so were ruling with Christ. So, you read these letters a little more critically, right? You see the contradictions and why we say some are undisputed and why some are disputed because they contradict some of the uh, teachings and the undisputed letters. So how is it that Paul in his undisputed letters can be so emphatic that believers have not yet experienced the resurrection with Christ? Whereas on the other hand, the author of this letter to the Colossians can be equally emphatic that they have. possible Paul changed his mind, either because he genuinely thought better of it later, although that seems very unlikely given his vehemence on this point, or maybe because when attacking a different heresy, he had to take a different approach, either consciously misrepresenting his views or forgetting what he had said earlier. It seems more plausible, though, that Paul went to his grave believing and consistently insisting that Christians had not yet been raised with Christ. If that's the case, it's hard to accept that he wrote this letter to the Colossians. So who wrote this letter if Paul did? We'll never know. But he must have been a member of one of Paul's churches who saw the apostle is an ultimate authority figure. So what does he do? He writes a fictitious letter to deal with a real problem he had come to know about, just like Thessalonians. You know, the issue is people aren't working, so he's got to write a letter using the, letter, the authority of Paul to get people back on the stick. Uh, so he's trying to deal with a, a problem he came to know about within his own congregation. 
It may well be that this unknown author had access to one or more of Paul's letters, including most likely the letter to Philemon. Why do we say that? Since the same names appear in the greetings of both letters. Using these other letters as models, he wrote an authoritative denunciation of a false philosophy that had begun to spread, putting this pseudonymous writing into circulation and representing it as an authoritative letter of the Apostle Paul. I think I'll give you a break here, because then we'll come back and do Ephesians, all right? Let's start and break it up. Any questions on that? Am I clear? Yes. I have a question. I was wondering, back when we were talking about um, Paul writing the, the first letter we talked about, um, if, if someone wrote a letter after Paul was dead, wouldn't that be a problem? Like, he, well, his death could have been, he got it. Be, you know, he was fascinated, so I feel like people would hear about it and not believe that he wrote the letter. Like, Well, the thing know. is that the letter would be written and circulated uh, not just to the community it was addressed to, but to various other communities. The letters came to be collected. So uh, if, if you were not from Colossae, you wouldn't know whether the letter was written before he died or after he died. Okay. That makes sense. So don't think they were that stupid. That uh, <laughs> it would have said, you know, this guy's been dead for 10 years, and now all of a sudden he's writing. No, uh, it's just that uh, you know, it could be close to the time of Paul's death or later on, or maybe that he wrote this way back some years ago you know, to the people there. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's true. Okay, got it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's almost like uh, you know, some people go into an attic and find letters you know, written to people. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, maybe they're not, they never knew that somebody died in a war or something, but here are letters that were sent. Or people wondering why somebody never answered my letter. They find out it's some mailman ditched it in a place or uh, somebody failed to deliver it. Mm-hmm. There's lots of reasons. Uh, so for sure, if, if they knew this was a fake, it, it's the same thing with Second Thessalonians. says, you know, somebody wrote you a fake letter, you know, purportedly from Paul. But, but that's, I'm writing the real letter. I'm the real Paul. And in fact, the first letter is the real one. The second letter is, you know, written by a disciple of Paul. But they're using Paul's name to make sure that uh, there is an authority behind the, the words of the letter and that people will take it seriously. This is not some Joe Schmo writing this to me. This is the guy, Paul. And, uh, you know, if he's displeased with what's going on or if he wants us to get back on the right track in terms of our orthodox belief, yeah, we better listen to him. But you can see why... Uh, the differences in the disputed letters as opposed to the undisputed letters. Disputed letters contradict. You're living in exalted times. Uh, the 
parousia is not going to come for a long time. No, these are not the things that are in the undisputed letters of Paul. Paul says it can come anytime, like a thief in the night. Or you've died with Christ, but you haven't been raised with him. Mm-hmm. So you can see why we claim certain letters are disputed, some undisputed. It's not arbitrary. It's just that the content of the letter goes against what we are pretty sure Paul wrote and believed. Makes sense. Do you think that they had to work some things out? Like in the early church, I feel like they were figuring everything out all at once. So it would be easy to kind of slip into a situation where you think Jesus is coming like, like any day now, like you really feel like, you know, like a sequence of events would happen. And then you'd realize you're in it for the long haul. And like, Well, this is what happened. The church had to adapt. But Paul himself, uh, he didn't write uh, a lot uh, because for him, he went around like a lunatic, traveled all over the place, getting shipwrecked and imprisoned, etc. Why was he doing that? Because he wanted to get out there to preach the message so that before Christ returned, people would be able to accept Jesus and believe in him and live his gospel message. So, you know, he didn't bother to write a lot. The only time he wrote was, you know, when somebody got under his skin or is saying, you know, what are these idiots doing? Don't they remember what I said to them when I was with them? You know, they're upsetting me. They're just, you know, turning their back on the gospel I preached to them, especially if they're now reverting back to following the Jewish law and adopting circumcision. I just told them that they were free from that. What saved them was not the law and the sign of the covenant, but you know, faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So, uh, but then we'll see uh, if I get a chance that the letters, the pastoral letters are written to deal with the fact that the church is going to be around. And that's why you have the Acts of the Apostles. When you talk about how Stephen, they start ordaining deacons. Why? Well, you know, if you thought the end was going to be tomorrow, why set up a structure? Right. It's all going to be over. So the church is coming to terms with uh, something that Paul, I don't know whether he came to terms with it, whether he died before that happened. He certainly believed it would happen very soon, come suddenly. Uh, You know, you look at Mark's gospel, again, it's going to happen very soon. Uh, As you read the Acts of the Apostles, and now they're establishing structures. Yeah. So the church is coming to terms with the fact that, you know, we've mis- been mistaken on this. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Thank you. All right. We'll give you a break uh, by 8.30. Come back to Ephesians. The spiritual eminence. Am I right? <laughs> uh, the wife said, no. Uh, the guys. 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 Uh,